Who here has ever said, I forgive you, and not meant it? You can keep your hand up, CJ. When I was a kid and one of my brothers would do something to me, obviously it was them doing something to me and not the other way around, my parents would make them apologize, you know, and then they'd make me say, I forgive them. But did I really forgive them? Not usually. This might be surprising to you, but a forced response to a forced apology may not be genuine. <laughs> but we don't do it just as kids. I think we do it as adults, too. I think sometimes we say, I forgive you, because we know that we should, even though we don't. I think sometimes we say it to get out of awkward conversations. <laughs> we don't know how to handle that. Oftentimes we say, I forgive you, but we still want the other person to pay. Or we want nothing to do with them. But what would it look like to take forgiveness seriously? And why does it matter? Look with me today at 2 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. It's printed in your worship guides. Let's see what Paul has to say to the church in Corinth. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by ex excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in need of your help. That we are hesitant to forgive, that we don't know what it can even look like in our lives so often. We ask that you would help us as we look at this passage this morning, that your spirit would illuminate to our hearts and minds, that we could know and understand, that we could see you more clearly through it and see what you call us to in response. We ask that you would be with us and working in us by your spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage this morning follows right on what we saw last week, where we saw Paul loves the church in Corinth. Despite everything that's happened, he loves them. And his last visit to them was a painful one for him. He suffered in it. The church that he started, the church that he loves, was questioning his ministry there. They were questioning his identity as an apostle of the Lord. But he didn't want to make another visit to them and cause them pain. So he writes them a letter. It says at the end of verse 4, he writes it not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. I'm doing this because I love you and it's for your good. Now we don't have that letter. But this morning, we're going to see some of the results of it. We're going to see kind of what came out of it. 
And then Paul's going to lead them in the next step in applying the gospel to this painful situation. Forgiveness. But before we get to forgiveness, we have to actually consider the sin. What it is being forgiven. So we're going to see this morning that living under the gospel means that we take both sin and forgiveness seriously. So if I were Dan, standing up here, I would say, if there's one thing you need to remember or write down, it's this. Living under the gospel means that we take both sin and forgiveness seriously. So first, we take sin seriously. And we do this first by recognizing the reach of its effects. Look at me at verse 5. Paul says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So Paul's continuing this theme of pain or grief, or we'll see it translated sorrow in a couple verses here that he began in verse 1. It's kind of a continuation of that. Paul was caused pain. He was grieved by his last visit. But he even downplays this pain to emphasize how it affected all of them, how it affected the Corinthian church. The sin was directly against Paul, but the whole church was hurt by it, even if they didn't recognize it. And that's the reality of sin in the church. Sin in the body of Christ affects the whole body of Christ. It's the natural outflow of what Paul has previously taught. If you remember back in 1 Corinthians, he tells them that they're all members of one body, that they're united by one spirit, that we're connected in ways that we can't even see, that we actually need each other, that we're to care for one another. And he even says there that if one member suffers, we all suffer. There's this connectedness in the body of Christ. There are no independent members floating off in isolation. Now, we don't know exactly what the guy that Paul's talking about did. If you've read 1 Corinthians, there are lots of things going on in the church. But the context seems to point to him being kind of this ringleader of this faction that's rejecting Paul. But we don't know exactly what happened or what he was saying. But he hurt Paul, and in doing so, created this distance between Paul and the whole church. It affected everyone, even the church members who don't realize that anything's happening, they're affected by it. They're distanced from Paul, the one who brought them this message of grace, this message of reconciliation, of forgiveness. They don't get the encouragement and the joy in Paul's visit. They're robbed of another visit that Paul would have longed to have made. They receive a letter out of anguish instead of out of joy. You see the effects of this. They're permeating through what the church is receiving. It's like you throw a stone into a very still pond. right? The rock hits in one spot, splat. But then the ripples go out and touch everything. So it is with our sin. And I think that's part of our problem in thinking about sin. We think we can keep it contained. We console ourselves with the thought that it's not affecting anyone else. Oblivious to these ripples that are going out. That are touching 
others' lives. I mean, how often are we like that, where we think our sin isn't hurting anyone else? Maybe I did need to switch mics here. I'm going to pause here for station identification. is turned on. There we go. Sorry about that. Yeah, but we're oblivious to the fact that our sin goes out and touches everyone. I mean, we think that we're isolated. We think that we can keep it to ourselves, where what we do, especially in private, can stay in the dark, that it won't affect other people. We think that the pornography that I look at isn't actually changing the way that I view men and women in the church, in the way that I interact with them. We think that my laziness or my endless TV binging isn't doing anything to anyone, but we don't realize that it's actually stripping other people of our fellowship. That it's actually keeping them from the good works that God has prepared us to walk in. That there's actually change or things that are being withheld even when we don't realize it. That these ripples go out. Or even conflict with one other person. We think it stays between the two of us. But what really happens? Friends take sides. It bleeds into these other relationships where my anger and my lashing out at my spouse and children, it doesn't stay in the living room. But it affects the way that they view themselves and the way they think relationships work as they go out into the world. <laughs> Talk to any counselors and you'll see the effects of sin permeating lives. It touches all of us. And it doesn't even stay in these closed circles, even within our community. Right? The majority of the people that I share the gospel with these days, at some point in our conversation... I end up apologizing for hurt that they've experienced in the church. It ripples out. If any of these things I mentioned kind of resonate with you, I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm not saying you just need to stop and do better. Be better. It's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to point out the fact that our sin has more consequences than we think, that it affects more things than we think, that we can't continue to act like it's not a big deal, like it's not hurting anyone else, because it's a myth. It is already and is continuing to hurt others. So if we're going to take sin seriously, we need to see the reach of its effects. But it can't stop there. We also need to approach it appropriately. Look at verse 6. It says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So Paul makes it clear that he has a certain person in mind and that action has already been taken. Even if the Corinthians didn't do it at first, after the sending of the letter, they've taken this action, this punishment. They're taking it seriously now. 
seems to be at least part of the content of that letter that we don't have. So just as we're not told exactly what the person did, we're not told exactly what the consequences were. But most likely he was excluded from the community, what we'd probably call excommunication. But Paul says that that punishment is enough or it's sufficient, meaning that it's brought about what it was intending to do and can stop. The man has repented. He has reversed course on what he was doing. Had he not, Paul would not have urged them to relent. We see that in 1 Corinthians 5 where he says, well, hand him over to Satan. Or you see the same thing in 1 Timothy where there's this repentance, there's this relentance. And that was the goal all along. This noun punishment is only used here in the New Testament. Paul uses the verb once, talking to Timothy, and it's translated rebuke when he tells Timothy to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The punishment is restorative. It's not retributive. We're not trying to cause suffering. We're not trying to get back at them. We're trying to heal them. That's the goal, one of the goals of all biblical church discipline is the restoration of the offender. Hopefully we see this with our children. Good parents don't punish their children to make them pay, to see them suffer. We discipline our children because we love them and we want to see them change and grow and mature. It's for their good. And we can't just ignore the sin. It's not good for the sinner as they're either left to die in the sin or they're never called deeper into Christ through repentance. And it's not good for the church for some of the reasons we just talked about. So to take sin seriously means we approach it appropriately. If it's sin in our own lives, it means confessing and turning away from it, reversing course clinging to Christ by faith instead. Now, it's easy to say, right? It's a little harder to do sometimes. But it begins by actually recognizing that through Christ's death and resurrection, we're no longer slaves to sin. That it doesn't actually have power over us any longer like it once did. His Spirit is at work in us to change us, to empower us, to change. And he hasn't left us alone either. He's given us the church. He's given us the body. That's when we suffer the most with this. We struggle the most when we're trying to handle it on our own because we don't want to admit what's going on because we think we're strong enough when the reality is we're not. It's going to be the theme this whole book, strength and weakness. We need help. God has given us Christ, he's given us his spirit, and he's given us his body. So find someone that you trust, that you know loves you and wants to see you look more like Jesus and ask for help. If it's sin we see in others, most of the time this means we follow what's outlined in Matthew 18. First you go to them one-on-one and talk to them about it. If they're obstinate, then you bring one or two witnesses. If they don't do anything, then you bring the church. This man in Corinth made it all the way to the point of the church having to publicly discipline him. 
Praise God that we don't have anyone right now that's under this formal church discipline. But it does mean that us as members of Christ's body here at Emmaus Road, that if we're going to take sin seriously, that we're going to need to approach each other in our sin. We're going to need to do that appropriately. Most often it's going to be going to the person you see and just talking to them. Asking what's going on. Letting them know what you're seeing in their lives. We have to begin, first of all, by acknowledging it. This isn't easy, right? It's uncomfortable. We worry about how the person's going to respond. It needs to be done with humility, which we often lack. Recognizing we don't see the whole picture. We don't know everything that's going on. Recognizing that they might get defensive, they might lash out at us, and we have to take it, not respond in kind. We also need to recognize that it's not easy to hear, and we need to do it gently. Even if our desire is to be like Christ, it's a bit of a gut check when someone comes up to you and tells you how you're failing in that. But it's good for us. I've had people do it to me. Every time it's drawn me closer to that person and closer to Christ. It's not easy, but it's good. And it takes seriously our call to live holy lives. The reality is that we should all expect it. It's weird that we go as long as we do without anyone pointing anything out. John tells us that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Maybe if we took it a little more seriously and we had these conversations more, they'd be easier to have. They're muscles that we've probably let atrophy a little too much. Living under the gospel means that we take sin seriously, and it also means that we take Forgiveness, seriously, both for the sake of the sinner and for the sake of the church. Look at me at verses 7 to 8. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So now we have this one who has caused grief, who has caused pain and then repented, is now at risk of being overwhelmed by grief or sorrow, or pain, it's the same word, himself. He's repented, but he has not been restored. He continues to suffer under this discipline. Now it's not for his own good, but it's to his potential detriment. So what does Paul say? He says, stop disciplining him, and forgive him, and comfort him instead. If you remember just a chapter ago, what Paul said about comfort. He said that our God is the God of all comfort. That as we comfort others, we comfort them through Christ just as we are comforted. Our comfort and forgiveness can only come through Christ. The one who took our sin seriously. He died on a cross to absorb the cost of it so that we might be forgiven. We can only comfort and forgive others to the extent that we are comforted and forgiven by Christ. 
It's only then that we can reaffirm our love for the sinner, that we can, it's kind of this decide in favor of love and letting him know it. It's this public proclamation. It's not, well, I forgive him in my heart and I'm not going to tell him about it and it'll be fine and we'll move forward. It's not what it is. It's public. It's not like parents who never tell their kids they love them but assume that they know it because they take care of them. It's not like that. It'd be like calling him up here on the stage and saying, we know your sin. Looking it squarely in the face and saying, we forgive you and we love you. You belong here. You are part of us. I'll give the caveat that it doesn't mean that there can't be lasting consequences for sin. And it doesn't mean that everything necessarily goes back to the way it was before. It doesn't mean that harmful relationships are forced back together or that authority and influence are re-given to that person who misused them. And it doesn't mean that the way we experience forgiving someone happens just like that we decide to and it's done, right? We know that it can be a process in the way that we experience forgiving others. We know that lack of forgiveness can rear its ugly head and we have to continue to deal with it. But it does mean that the repentant person can and should be fully loved and fully belong to the church as someone who is fully forgiven and comforted because of Christ. We need to take forgiveness seriously for the sake of the sinner, that they can know the love and grace and comfort and forgiveness of Christ and not be overtaken by their grief and sorrow and rejection by Christians when they've repented. We also need to take forgiveness seriously for the sake of the church, Look at verse 9. He says, This is why I wrote that I might test and know whether you are obedient in everything. Paul's not talking about whether you're obedient to me as Paul, the person, but are you obedient to God through his apostle Paul? That they can show the proof of their love for God through obedience to him. If you notice what the obedience here is, pretty consistent with everything else God calls us to. Reaffirm your love for him. Love the sinner. Isn't that the mark of the Christian and the church? Love? A reflection of our God who is love? Paul continues in verse 10. He broadens it out. This isn't just about this one guy. This is the way of life in the church. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. It's also for the sake of the church. He says, indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Paul's not just teaching about forgiveness. He's modeling it for them. He's showing them what it looks like. If I have forgiven anything, playing down what he's experienced, to say, I've truly forgiven him, and so can you. 
Paul's life is lived before the face of God. Christ is looking on as Paul is modeling this forgiveness. And Paul's aware. And it's not all that different from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Any true forgiveness that we have to offer others is empowered by the reality of our relationship to Christ. This vertical relationship has to determine what happens on the horizontal level. Christ is present with us by his spirit and it's through him that though we were once enemies, now we are the fully forgiven people of God. And Paul gives his purpose clause for verse 10 and verse 11 here, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Dane Ortland puts it this way, he says, For the Corinthians not to embrace the fallen brother is to be outwitted by Satan. Withholding of forgiveness is satanic. It may feel righteous, morally serious, but it is to align with hell rather than heaven. For us to not forgive is to let Satan take advantage of us. To allow division to remain in the body of Christ is to play right into his hand. It's what he wants. He wants us to cast others out with no chance of redemption. He wants us to gossip and take sides and position ourselves against one another. He wants us to put these ongoing conditions on our forgiveness. He wants us to keep rehashing sins that have been repented of. These are his schemes. This is what he wants. This is how he divides the body of Christ. And as the father of lies, I think there are two main lies that we believe that keep us from taking this forgiveness seriously. They have to do with the way we view ourselves and the way we view God. If you're doing the gospel-centered life, they fit right in line with pretending and performing, too. I mean, simple things, but they're so profound. One is that we think our own sin isn't that serious. And the second is, we don't think Jesus really forgives us. So first, we fail to fully forgive others when we don't think our sin is as serious. I mean, if it's not, then we can put ourselves above others. We can only say what you did is unforgivable if what I did isn't as bad. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying every sin is the same. Our own catechism says that some sins, by virtue of themselves and by several aggravations, are more heinous in the sight of God than others. They're not the same. And yet the very next question in our catechism says that every sin deserves God's wrath and displeasure, both in this life and that which is to come. Some sins are worse than others. But all of them set us up against God as his enemies. But if we're going to 
truly forgive others, we can't look down on them thinking we're better. We have to recognize that our sin deserves the same fate. I mean, I, I hear this phrase probably more than I should, but there's a special place in hell reserved for that type of person. Right? And I get what they're saying. They're pointing out how heinous that sin is. But at the same time, they're saying our sins wouldn't put us in that bad of a place. That there's this variance in what we deserve. We have to recognize that it took the death of our innocent Savior to forgive us. That the cross is the great leveler. That we all come to it with nothing to offer but the sin for which it pays. To kind of rephrase Jonathan Edwards. Then when we consider what it costs for our sin to be forgiven, we can recognize that it doesn't cost us more to forgive someone else. Right? There is a cost in forgiving. There's a cost to bear. There's suffering that we share in by forgiving but we can absorb that cost knowing Christ has done so much more for us. Second, we fail to fully forgive because we don't think Jesus really forgives us. We hold on to sin and bring it back up because that's what we think God does with us. That's how we think he engages with us, that he's this cosmic disciplinarian instead of a loving father. That he is harsh and vindictive and not gentle and lowly. But the problem is, it's just not the truth. It's not how Scripture portrays him, and it's not how Jesus lived. He is so much kinder to us than we imagine. His forgiveness is so much deeper than we dare dream. If you struggle with this second part, we had studies this last semester going through um, the book Gentle and Lowly. I have extra copies of that. If you would like one, let me know after the service and I'll give it to you and I'd love to talk it through with you. A couple of weeks ago we sang It Is Well, familiar song, most of us know it, right? I was up here while they were practicing beforehand and mention to the team my favorite part of the song. It's this, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Horatio Spafford wrote that. Many of you know his story, but as he's writing that, that line just sticks with me. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. He interrupts himself in the middle of the thought with this joy that's uncontainable. Oh the bliss of this glorious thought that my sin is gone completely. Not some of it, not part of it, all of it. Praise God. That he delivers us from our sin completely. Do you feel that? 
Do you feel that well up in your soul when you consider your sin? When you look at the reality of the seriousness, when you see the heinousness of it and the fact that we continue in it. And yet we look to Christ and we say, It is finished. It is done. It was taken care of on the cross. When we know that we've been truly forgiven, it's only then that we can truly forgive others. Are there sins that you need to take seriously? Is there someone that you need to forgive? Look to Christ. Where we see both the seriousness of sin, sin that took his death to defeat, and the fullness of forgiveness, where all who trust in him have been forgiven, not in part, but the whole. And living under this good news, we can imitate our Savior. We can follow him as we take sin and forgiveness seriously.